Okay, there we go. Well, good morning. My name is Joe. I'm the Next Gen Pastor uh, here at Fieldstone. And today we are going to be talking about Old Testament prophets, which is very convenient for Justin to be gone, right? <laughs> just like, yeah, Joe, can you just do this weekend? I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. It's the Old Testament prophets. I'm like, oh, okay. Maybe because he can't handle it. He needs the big guns to come in, the youth pastor to come in. Um, so I was sitting down here, and I changed up how I want to do things. I want to tell you what I want you to grab from this talk, and then I'll tell you at the end um, again. But there's three points that I really want you to walk away with this talk. The first thing is I want you to know that God is faithful, that God's promises come true. And not only that, but, but as we read the Old Testament prophecies and how God prophesied or God spoke through different people and these things came about, we can do the exact same and we can take the faith that, man, as God says that I'm loved, I'm a child, that Jesus died for my sins and all that, we can believe that promise just as much as these other prophecies had been fulfilled. The second thing I want you to know is that all this stuff that I'm about to tell you today didn't just come from me. Like, I'm stealing a lot of it, right? Because uh, that's what I'm good at. I'm good at stealing people's ideas. But as we study Old Testament prophecy, you, you shouldn't do it alone. You shouldn't. Uh, most of the time, if you do it alone, you'll read it out of context. So have some Bible uh, resources, uh, you know, use it, guide it, and that type of stuff. And then as you study and read Old Testament prophecy, uh, the, next, the last thing I want you to know is don't be lazy. Uh, it's very easy to read it and go, oh, that's cute, or oh, that's crazy, scary, and then just keep on reading when you don't fully understand it. And so those are the three points. I'll say those all again at the end that I want you to come at. But uh, I'm like scatterbrained on this because how can you not when you're covering, uh, this is 22% of the entire Bible. That's what we'll be talking about here in 30 minutes. I already gave Christy a warning that I, I might go a little long, but... Um, we're going to try that. So the Old Testament prophets make up 29% of the Old Testament writings. So a good chunk in a year. It's just shy of three months of reading just Old Testament prophets. As, as you're reading them, you're probably inspired. You're probably in awe. You're probably worried about the world ending as you read it. You're probably confused, and you're probably even bored. Uh, that's the, all the emotions as you kind of go through the Old Testament prophets. If you've read any portion of it, I'm sure you, you felt that. And a lot of times, you kind of just walk away confused. Because reading the Old Testament prophets, it, it is hard. Uh, you got 25 plus you know, 100 years of context and, and understanding that is between us from their writing from us. And so trying to understand what was being communicated, it's not a great idea for a, a new believer, someone that wants to start reading the Bible. We don't tell you like, oh yeah, start in Isaiah. No, we don't tell you to start there for a really reason because it is hard. Uh, because if you were to do just a plain reading of the Old Testament prophets, the way that you would read it, the pictures that would form in your head, the way that you would see things unfolding would be totally different than then what they would hear a thousand or fifteen hundred years ago. And so that's why I say we need help when we when we read the Old Testament prophets. And it's sometimes it's also hard to wrap around uh, our head that the the Old Testament is some maybe people would say the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are, are the same God. They haven't changed. Like, God didn't, didn't just 
you know, put a switch on, and he's completely different in the, in the New Testament. The same God that we're going to talk about today is the, is the God of love, is the God of joy, is the one of forgiveness. Um, and so I want to start with some basics, just some basic knowledge. Who or what is a prophet? Uh, so a prophet, also known as a seer, a man of God, also in the Old Testament, a, a servant of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord. And there's kind of three things that qualify uh, a prophet. The first is one who was authorized to speak for another, and we find that in um, uh, Exodus 6. And so a lot of these references I don't have on the screen, but Exodus 6 kind of defines what is a prophet. A prophet is one who receives his message directly from God. We see that in Numbers 12. And a prophet and his message could be authenticated. That was the big one, right? And the way that it was authenticated was they could go back and look at Scripture before them and authenticate it, uh, meaning they, they couldn't take what uh, outside of what God has already said. Uh, a prophet had to speak in the Lord's name. They couldn't be like, well, I hope this is what God is saying. No, they, they had to be confident because there was consequences if they didn't. Uh, if they spoke in the Lord's name and it didn't come to pass, there was huge consequences. It was death. And the prophet's message was uh, accompanied by authentic, uh, authenticating signs. Uh, and we see that in Deuteronomy 18. There, there was these requirements for who a prophet is and, and what a prophet was to do. And literally in the Old Testament, uh, there, there is, what, only 17 books, 17 prophets that we kind of read in, but there was hundreds of prophets, uh, hundreds of prophets that came through. Um, and a lot of times, two weeks ago, we talked about Old Testament history, by the way. I'm going to speak really fast because i got a lot to cover. Um, but the, the Old Testament prophets, we, we read a lot of things on behalf of God. They would go and they would speak to the people, but as we read in Old Testament history, most of the time, we, we hear about more than what they did than what they said. We don't hear everything what they said, but we hear about what they did, and we know their character. We kind of get a picture of who they are. When we read the 17 books of prophecy that are in the Old Testament, maybe 16 if you don't count Jonah because he only had like one line of prophecy, but um, you hear more about what they said than who they were. You didn't hear so much about what they did. You, I mean, there was some stuff you hear about Isaiah and Ezekiel and what they did and some of the, the roamings and stuff, what they did. But, but you hear about more of the things they said and what they proclaimed was from God. And so thanks, Justin, for giving me 22% of the Bible and trying to jam this in in 30 seconds. Um, here's some other fun facts. When we think of Old Testament prophecy, we have to wrap our mind around this. Less than 2% of Old Testament prophecy are messianic. Now, there's a lot of Old Testament prophecy that points to Jesus. There's a lot, you know, all, all scripture points to Jesus. But less than 2% has direct impact and specific prophecies about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Less than 5% specifically describes the new covenant age. That is the age that we're living in, the, under the blood of Jesus, that, the new covenant. So less than 5% has to do that. And then less than 1% have to do with events yet to come. And so as we're talking about the Old Testament prophecy, a lot of what we're reading uh, within these prophets uh, wasn't meant for us technically, right? And has already been fulfilled. 
So when we think of prophecy, we, we tend to think of this announcement of the future yet to come. And this was true for the audience it was written for, for the people that, that Isaiah was speaking to. That was to come. But it was more for the immediate future. It, they were talking years and decades before prophecies would be fulfilled. Um, not technically thousands of years that maybe sometimes we think of. And so a lot of times, uh, and, th- and this is where we kind of get a little scattered because there's so much to go into understanding Old Testament prophecy. The, the first thing I want, I want you to understand is that when, you, when Old Testament prophecy was given, and, and as we read it, specifically in the Bible, it's just kind of this long, and a lot of times it's broken up in the chapters, but when it was given, a lot of times there was no timelines. Um, they would have visions, they would have dreams, they would be given direct words. They saw everything a lot of times at once, and they were unable to see or to, to know a direct timeline. And, and we see that today. Um, and, and what I mean by that is a lot of times prophecies, as we read them, uh, there's these breaks within them, and sometimes there's years or even thousands of years before the rest of the prophecy begins to be fulfilled. The one example I kind of want to get into is Joel uh, 2, and this is not even where I'm going today, but I just want to show you this. this. This is how interesting and confusing Old Testament prophecy can get. Joel 2 is directed to the nation of Judah at the time. So there was Israel, they split, and, and Judah's one of the nations at the time. And, and Joel 2, verses 1 through 2 says this. It says, uh, blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Sound like a great day, doesn't it? Uh, but this is, this is going to the nation of Judah. And if you know the historical context, they were turning their back from God. They had a wicked queen at the time. It was horrible. And Joel comes in, and he's a prophet. And he's like, listen, this is the things that are coming. God has pronounced judgment on you. And he said he's going to take care of it because you guys have turned your back. And and the interesting about Joel 2, this chapter, is most of the things that are prophesied in Joel 2 never actually happened. Because if you continue reading in Joel 2, he goes, but if you repent, if you come back to the Lord, you'll receive God's blessing back again. And so we see this in 2 Kings chapter 11, when this prophecy was given, and literally in a matter of days, the nation turned around, and they hear this prophecy, and they take away the queen, and they take away all the, the false idols, and they tear them all down, and they take the lineage of the king, uh, and they, they pronounce uh, Joash as king at seven years old, and they commit as a nation to turn back to God and these Lord's people. And so in Joel 2, it never actually happens. And so between that, you kind of read of the doom and gloom. You read of the punishment that would take place. You read of the blessing in Joel 2, like, hey, but if you repent, you'll get the Lord's favor. You'll, you'll, Lord, you know, you'll get it back. But then in Joel 2, towards the end, verses 28 through 32, you see this break happen. And you see kind of this dual prophecy take place in the sense of it was fulfilled in Judah at the time, but it was completely fulfilled in Acts. And it's in Joel 2, verse 28 through 32, it says, And afterwards, 
I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. So you kind of see this break all of a sudden take place. The sun will turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Wait, what's the day of the Lord? And we'll get to that in a second because now he's talking about a different day. All right, and, the, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved for the Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be a deliverance as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Hard to follow. And so as you're reading Joel 2, there's so much going on. There is this, this section that, man, the prophecy was fulfilled right away. And then we see uh, Peter get up in Acts 2, and he quotes verses 28 and 29, saying, this is God Pentecost. This is God fulfilling uh, 28, where he says, I'll pour out my spirit on all of you. And then Joel goes into another day of the Lord. And that is the one that we should all be terrified of, right? Uh, that is the day of the Lord. There's so many, if you read Old Testament prophecy, it says the day of the Lord. There's a lot of little days of the Lord where God comes in, he judges, he does his, his judgment and his punishment. And we'll talk why he does that here in a second. But then there's the day of the Lord. And that's what we kind of see in Joel. And this timeline, and we see these dual prophecies take place. And as a plain reading, it's confusing. It's hard to understand. That's why we might need a little bit of help. And then Justin, at the end of the series, will get into to the book of Revelation, where he actually describes the day of the Lord. And, and the cool thing is that everything that was written in the Old Testament it confirms Revelation. In fact, Revelation, you, you think, is like this whole brand new book. No, Revelation, everything in Revelation is confirmed from the Old Testament prophecy. There's nothing new that, that is brand new in Revelation. It might be new wording. It might be new understanding and new interpretation, new vision, the way that, that John saw Revelation playing out. But there's nothing brand new that hasn't been said in the Old Testament. So understanding that it's a little goofy to read sometimes, understanding the timeline, understanding these dual prophecies, understanding the breaks within prophecies uh, can be very confusing when you're 2,500 years out from those prophecies and you're trying to read them and trying to understand them and trying to wrap your brain around it, uh, especially in our culture today. It's just It's hard to read. Then within the prophets itself, there's these things called minor and major. Now, that has nothing to do with who's more important or who's less important, just size of the book. You have the major prophets that are taking up a good chunk of that middle of the book, and then the minor prophets that are just chapters long. And they're, and they're, they're not, but they're just as powerful. They were just as important of what was, what was being said. So a prophet really did three things. And, and the role of a prophet wasn't to predict the future. That wasn't the role. The role of the prophet was like, listen, Moses gave you the covenant. Moses told you, like, you, you follow these rules, do things God's way. He gave you the law. He said that, and you will receive blessing. And then the opposite's true. That if you don't do things God's way, this nation that God has set up in order, and if you don't do things God's way, 
He'll, he, he's, you're going to be consequences. There's going to be punishment due to that. Here's a fun little note. Uh, anyone ever heard the, to- the term, you know, when God goes, you know, you, we're going to take you into the, the land of milk and honey, right? Most people know that term. Here's something fun to chew on. This is nothing. I, I just heard it, and I just, but uh, milk and honey is the only food not caused from death. And God's going, I'm going to take you to that land. I'm going to take you to the place that, that is flowing with milk and honey. And so we learned about the law a couple, three to four weeks ago, and it's the prophets are proclaiming if Israel was following the law, and if they weren't, they were proclaiming to Israel, repent and turn back to God, and if you don't, this is what's going to happen. And Leviticus 26 spells this completely out. Here's some things that Leviticus 26 says. It says, listen, if you do things God's way, man, you're going to have peace in your land. We're going to eliminate all harmful beasts from your land, and no sword will pass through your land. And then I'm kind of taking just quotes. It's not on the screen, but it says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will give you rains in their seasons so that the land will yield and produce, and trees of your field will produce fruit. Like, do things my way. This is my promise. This is my covenant. This is what I've given you. And then if you walk away and you turn to other gods, he says this, I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. I will increase the plagues on you seven times according to your sins. I will also bring upon you a sword which will execute vengeance. He goes in, he goes, I'm going to make your land so bare, so unlivable that your enemies don't even want to live there. That's what he's going to do when you, you turn your back on God. And so the prophets are kind of the enforcers of the law. They're the ones coming up and saying, listen, you guys, and pronouncing, you guys haven't been following the law. You haven't been doing things God's way. And then on the, the, on the flip side, man, just go out to battle. God got you. You know, just turn back. God will save you. And so that's kind of the main role of the prophets. Uh, and they were talking about judgment a lot of times. Not just to Israel, too, but it was also surrounding nations. Today, we're, we're just going to walk through three different prophecies that I find very interesting. Um, and the goal for today is hopefully, as we walk through them, that you get a little taste and you go, okay, there's way more here. I just got to do some work. You might just have to dig in a little bit deeper. Hopefully, I don't bore you. Um, so, we're going to look at... Tyre. Now, we had a big debate about this. I pronounce it Tyre. Someone told me to pronounce it Tyre. I learned from Old Testament uh, master's class, so if I, if I go back and forth, I'll pronounce it Tyre, but uh, there's this nation of Tyre. Everyone know, ever, everyone been there? Anyone know Tyre? No! No, you haven't. You probably have heard of Greece, big powerhouse, right? You've heard of Jerusalem. You've heard of Egypt. You, you've heard of Rome. You don't know Tyre. You just don't. Why? Because God struck judgment on them and wiped them out. Yet, they should have been a nation that is well known. Tyre is actually a place now. It's in Lebanon. Um, and we're going to read a good chunk of scripture. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Ezekiel 26. 
if you don't, words are going to be on the screen. Blue's going to do his best on the back. I read fast. He's going to try and keep up with me, uh, but we'll go from there, okay? It says this in verse 26, uh, or chapter 26, verse 1. In the 11th month of the 12th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre has said to Jerusalem, Ah, the gates to the nation is broken and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. So, pause. I'm going to pause right there. Put my finger there. Tyre was celebrating Jerusalem's fall because they just became more powerful. They're going to get more money now. They're going to get more prosper. Like, they're, they're this huge kind of port of entry that, that everyone would come in from the Med and they're like, aha, hey, Jerusalem's gone, makes us even more powerful, great. And so picking up in verse 3, it says, Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I am against you, Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out of the sea, she will become a place to spread fishnets, for I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. She will become plunder for the nations, and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Continuing verse 7. We're going all the way to verse 14. So this is what the sovereign Lord said. For the north I am going to bring against Tyre Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, with horsemen and a great army. He will ravage your settlements on the mainland with the sword. He will set up siege, work against you, build a ramp up into your walls, and raise his shields against you. He will direct the blows of his battering rams against your wall and demolish your towers with his weapons. His horses will be so many that they will, be, they will cover you with dust. Your walls will tremble at the noise of the war horses, wagons, and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city whose walls have been broken through. The hoofs of his horse will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword, and your strong pillar will fall to the ground. They will plunder your wealth and loot, your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish fine houses and throw your stones like... Are you not done yet? Uh, and, and so he keeps going, and demolish your fine houses, listen to this, and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. I will put an end to your noisy songs and the spread fishnets. You will never be rebuilt. For I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. This is aggressive prophecy, right? Um, let me talk a little bit uh, about Tyre. Tyre was a great nation. In fact, it was the nation where purple kind of came from, purple dye. And so if you know anything about the color of purple, purple was the most expensive. And to sell it, it was the high premium stuff. And so Tyre was on the Mediterranean. Um, go to that first picture, Blue. So you can see it's in Lebanon now. It's right at the top. Uh, south, uh, north of Israel, and it was right there. It was a great port of entry. People would come in. It was very interesting because Tyre, uh, it was kind of like a Mackinac Island. Everyone from Michigan, so we know the reference. You had the Mackinac City, and then you had the Mackinac Island, right? And you, you have to say, I'm visiting Mackinac or Mackinac Island, like depending on what you're doing. And so there was this island about a half mile out 
And so uh, this is what the island looked like. Uh, it was built up, ready to roll. Like, you could not take this army, literally walls all the way around this island. And so you have this nation, then you have the mainland, and you have this island about a halfway apart, and God said, I'm going, I'm going to destroy you. You're going you're gonna to be so destroyed that you can't be rebuilt to what you once were, and you'll never be the same. He said, all your people won't exist anymore. People won't even know you anymore. And that's exactly kind of what happens. And so what happened was Nebuchadnezzar, this prophecy was given, in, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in 587 uh, B.C., and uh, 588, 589 is when Nebuchadnezzar turned their sights on Tyre. Kind of turned their sights on them and came in and took the city and took 13 years and ravaged the whole mainland. Destroyed everything. Right, you know, just knocked it all down. If you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, he wasn't a nice, fluffy guy. He, he was mean to the point that uh, he, d- he just completely destroyed it, and most of the people that were in the, the mainland converted and moved over. Oh, not yet. Don't switch that. <laughs> moved over to the island. And so most of the people were, you know, destruction to their city, completely moved over to the island. Uh, and so that was 13 years. Nebuchadnezzar kind of, for some reason, turned his focus somewhere else. And left, and the island kind of just existed, and that was Tyre. And it was in that point. And then, in 33-2 B.C., another big person came on the scene, Alexander the Great. And so Alexander the Great didn't have a big ego, right? Didn't say in his name. He had a huge ego. He wanted people, and he wanted people to surrender to him and say, you know, that you are it. You are the person. And and so Alexander the Great came to the island, and he said, listen, just submit. Be under authority. Pay your taxes. Do what you need to do. And I, you know, you, you will be fine. We Just submit, wave the white flag, and, and let us rule over you. Well, Tyre, or uh, Tyre, uh, kind of was like, no. Go ahead. Look at our island. We got walls on the whole side. What are you going to do? Like, you can't do anything. Alexander the Great spent the next nine months taking everything that Nebuchadnezzar tore down, all the temples, all the stones, all the timber, throwing it into the ocean. Imagine that job. What are we doing? Building a landmass so they could ramp up into this island, a half a mile landmass. That's how big of an ego he had. That's how much he didn't want to lose. So you go to the next picture. He literally took everything from the mainland threw it into the ocean, and conquered the city, destroyed it, completely destroyed it, to the point where the only thing that you could do is throw fishnets down. And for years, people have tried to rebuild this city. People have come over and over and over. And if you do interesting history on it, uh, they've never technically have been successful to rebuild it. And partly, I think God's prophecy is the idea that you'll never be what you once were, because if you look at an aerial view of it, look at it, it's, it's a peninsula. There's no island anymore. That's what it looks like today. 
Here's another interesting fact. In 19, let me make sure I get this date right. 1894, when the, uh, there was a census done on uh, Tyre, at the time there was only 200 people living there. In, in 1894, and it was a fishing community. If you go there today, you actually see fishing nets on the rubble, and they kind of spread them out because that's really what it is there. But if you go there today, the population, you can kind of see the cities have built up. And uh, in Lebanon, now it's a tourist trap because everyone wants to go see where Ezekiel 26 happened. They want to go visit the spot of once was Tyre and, and see the rubble in the ocean and see what Alexander the Great did. This is the prophecies that we're talking about. This is cool. And then, even the fun fact is we talk about the dual prophecy. If you go to Ezekiel 26, I don't have it on the screen or anything. The Ezekiel, uh, not 26, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28 talks about the king of Tyre. It talks about the king, but if you know the passage, Ezekiel 28, verse 11 through 16, he's doing this dual prophecy Ezekiel is. I don't know if he knew it or if he not, but he, he kind of says this, and a lot of you knew this. He's talking about son of man. He said, the king of Tyre, and, and go to him and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and be perfect in beauty. You were in the Eden, the, the garden of God. Does anyone know that passage? You were anointed. You were the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. A lot of people take Ezekiel 28 as God talking about Satan. He's talking about the fall of Satan. Yet, it's this cool little combination of going the king of Tyre's pride of everything that he thought he could do and everything that he thought he could accomplish was the same pride like Satan. And it's this cool kind of visionary picture of where Satan and his fall and his pride, yet tying it to some realistic event that took place here on earth. And it's just this cool, interesting kind of lap uh, tie over. So if you ever wanted to dive into that, it's very fun. It's very interesting. You're like, so what, Joe? Cool facts. Great. But the way, so powerful, the way the prophets spoke on behalf of God, the way it describes the place that was laying fishing nets, that's all it's ever going to be. And like I said, you go there today, I guarantee you, you'll see some fishing nets out there. And how God showed up on his promises, right? That God took this powerful city, this powerful nation, that was completely against him and said, uh-uh, you're not going to exist anymore to the point that it will never be rebuilt to what it once was. This is our God. This is the God that's for you. This is the God that is all loving. But at the very same time, he's a jealous. He has judgment and he has wrath. And it's this hard balance sometimes to wrap our head around. We're going into another prophecy. Okay, it's in the book. It's a minor prophet. Obadiah, all right? Obadiah is a minor prophet, and he speaks about the judgment of Edom. Edom. Now, Edom, here's a fun thing. Edom, and you probably, if you've read any of the Old Testament or prophecy or anything like that, Edom is from the lineage of Esau uh, in the book of Genesis. So if you're familiar with the story, I think I have a quick little goofy picture, or I don't know, blue. Um, but Esau was from the book 
of, of Genesis, and it's Jacob and Esau and their twins, and Esau's the one that comes out all red. Yeah, it's kind of familiar. All right, there we go. He's hairy, he's red, he's a mountain man, he's the hunter, right? That, that is who we are talking about. Edom, the nation of Edom literally means red, and they were south of the Dead Sea in an area where there was red dirt. Play on words, there was a prophecy, there was a foretelling of who this nation was going to become. It's very interesting, very complex, very cool. But we're going to read in Obadiah verses 2 through 3. I'm going to skip around a little bit. It says this. He's talking about the judgment against this nation. All right. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart have deceived you. You who live in clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights, you who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? That's the kind of pride. This is Edom. This is the one that, that they thought they were all powerful. They were kind of like Tyre, and but for a different reason. They didn't have an island. They literally lived in these valleys with giant rock cliffs. And we'll get to that picture here in a second, Blue. They literally lived in valleys with giant rock cliffs that if you wanted to be overtaken, they would dig into the rocks, they would build their homes, and they had all these bottlenecks that no army could get into. Yet, it was a trade route. So they can control trade. And so Edom, even though they were small, even though they were, were really localized where they were, they were really hard to overcome because of the way that they couldn't get through. Verse 10 says this, Because of your violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. And then we verse, jump down to verse 18. It says this, Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. Basically saying that lineage is going to die. Like, I, I'm going to take it all out. Why? Esau being the great nation was the, the brother of Jacob. They came from Abraham and Sarah, right? Edom, like I said, literally means red. Um, and, and what ended up happening was, Edom would over and over again just hated Israel. Hated Israel. But Israel even had a command in Deuteronomy. At Deuteronomy 23.7, it says this. Do not despise an Edomite, for the Edomite are related to you. And so over time... Edom would continue just attack, attack, attack. We see them attacking through uh, King Saul, King David, King Solomon. Um, we also kind of see uh, God kind of got to this point of judgment because of the way that Edom would just constantly attack. And then we see in Moses, you know, when they were entering the promised land, uh, Edom wouldn't let them cross through their land. So Edom said, nope. Moses, or they were, you know, Joshua and all of them were like, hey, we'll even pay. We're not going to touch anything. Anything our cattle drink or eat, we will pay for. And Edom was like, nope, we're not going to let you do that. And they had to turn around and go the opposite way. And so this nation that was constantly always against Israel, and then God, when Israel was, or Jerusalem was completely destroyed and the temple was taken out by King Nebuchadnezzar, we see a role that Edom played, that Edom helped Nebuchadnezzar, Edom allowed them to cut through, even helped them destroy the city. And then Obadiah comes on the scene, and God you know, has this prophecy towards Edom. Um, and this is kind of 
what in the verse, uh, the beginning of verses, living in clefts of rock. This is Petra. If you guys know Petra, uh, it's a big tower. We got it up there, blue. The rock wall. The first one's Petra. Some's old. So this is like what I think of. I think is Indiana Jones. If you didn't go there, then have you even seen Indiana Jones? But whatever. Indiana Jones, this is Petra. This is some similar, like they were a great nation to be able to cut and tool and die into the rock. But like I said, there was these valleys. And the, and the main places where the most power were, they had to go through the deep, deep valleys to get to the big places in the city. So the armies could never reach them until the Assyrians showed up on the scene. And there was this guy uh, at the time. Uh, the, and the Assyrians came in and completely wiped them off. Completely fulfilled the prophecy of what was going to come. And then what ended up happening was, you know, the, the descendants of Esau, the they Edom and the Edomites, they scattered throughout. And the, the land was taken by the Assyrians. And then ultimately the Jews took the land back. And then we see the Greeks took control of Edom. And so you have these pockets of people that were kind of living there because, you know, you, you wipe out the city, you take control, but you still have people living there uh, that was from the line of Esau. And then you have the Romans that come in and they take control. And what we see from there, and as you kind of trace back, uh, during the Roman period, their, their lineage was completely gone. Um, and, and we see during that time that, that prophecy being fulfilled. Here's a fun, interesting fact. I love these little things that you can chew on, right? Uh, but King Herod from the Christmas story, the guy that wanted to kill baby Jesus and ordered the slaughter of all the children in Bethlehem under two to be, to be killed, he was an Edomite. He was from that lineage. Uh, and so he had a deep hate for Israel. He had a deep hate for those prophecies that were being talked about. Makes a lot more sense to the extent that he went through to try and kill baby Jesus. And it's such a small book, but as you dive into it, it starts to come alive more. more. How am I doing on time? Oh, shoot. All right. All right. I'm going to go through this one really, really quick, okay? Really quick. This one's the best one, Daniel 9. We're going to talk about this. This is the stuff, like, Joe, I want to talk about the stuff to come. Stuff. Go into Daniel, study Daniel. That is talking about the fun stuff. If you don't know uh, about the 77s, this is what we're going to dive into very, very quick. But in Daniel 9, it starts off this, which uh, verse 1, it says, In the first year... Uh, I skipped that one verse below. In the first year uh, of Darius, son of Xerxes. If you don't know who Xerxes is, maybe you're a millennial like me and you know the uh, 300 movie reference. That guy. That is Xerxes. The movie 300 kind of shows how big and powerful this guy was. And so as Daniel is talking, this is the reign that he's living in. He's living in under King Xerxes, right? And Daniel gets this vision to the point that it makes him sick. 
like sick, sick, because we read even when he, Daniel would get visions of the future, he would get grossly sick. You don't have to show this up on the screen, Blue, but in, in Daniel 8, verse 27, it says, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond my understanding. We know Daniel was seeing something that he just could not comprehend what was going on. And so we read that, and Daniel gets this vision, because Daniel would tend to get visions, and he writes down what is taking place. And we're going to start in verse 24 in Daniel 9. It says this, Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgressions, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to put in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Know and understand this, from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, don't forget Daniel's in Nebuchadnezzar, the temple is gone, Jerusalem's gone, like Daniel's sitting in, in slavery under King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's getting this vision, right? He says, uh, uh, we're re from the time the word goes on, restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in time of trouble. Talking about what was going to happen under Nehemiah, right? After the 62 sevens, the anointed one, obviously we're, we're talking about Jesus, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. All right? Keep that in mind. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and, and everything will be wiped off. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes, de I can never pronounce this word, uh, <laughs> desolation, until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. I'm going to go through this really quick. The idea of sevens were very common, right? Seven days in a week, six days, one day for rest, that type of thing. Uh, every seven years in Deuteronomy is talked about that debts were canceled, slaves were set free, land was to rest. The idea of seven in time periods was very common. And so Daniel's describing this. They know he's talking not in days, not in physical seven-day weeks. He's talking in years. So each week is seven years going for a period of 490 years. Uh, and so as they're talking, this, this is saying in the period, in 490 years, there's going to be a time period where all these things happen. It says to finish transgressions, to put an end to a sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in after everlasting righteousness, to seal vision and prophecy, right? To anoint the most holy. And we know Jesus fulfilled some of this and he partially fulfilled some of these, right? And so Daniel, as he's speaking, uh, the interesting fact is when you do the math, when you do the exact math, the first seven is 49 years. So from the start, the, the temple's going to be rebuilt. And, and then there's 434 years, equaling 483 years with seven years left. When you do the math from 444 B.C. in Nehemiah, taking Nehemiah 2 verses 1 through 8, and taking the Jewish calendar of 360 days, factoring in B.C. A.D. transition, all that fun stuff. Uh, the year ends up at 33 A.D., which is when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, finds himself on the cross. In fact, a lot of scholars, if you want to do the math, I don't have time for that. All right? But they do the math where it's actually the week where Jesus walks in on, on, on that uh, Palm Sunday. 
And it comes down in that last time period ends. And then in 70 AD, we see Jerusalem is completely destroyed by Rome. And it says this, the people, the ruler who will come, will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. We're talking about the temple and everything. And you kind of see this gap in time, and that's currently where we're at. Like I said, the timeline, a lot of these prophecies, they didn't have exactly a complete vision. They, complete, they didn't see the breaks. They didn't see how everything was going to unfold. Here's their homework. If you really want to dive into Daniel 9, if you want to know about end of times, dive in. Because that one's a fun one. If you didn't know Daniel 9 existed, there's tons and tons of resources because I think it's one of the most studied passages uh, on the future of yet to come uh, and how everything's going to unfold, specifically towards who is the last person that he's talking about. Because there's another person that kind of, in verses 26 and 27, there's a break. 27 talks about another person that is from our, my understanding, a lot of people's understanding is the Antichrist. So dive into that. It's fun. Three things I want to leave you with so I can get out of here. One, we study the Old Testament to build up our faith. Right? Because when God says that he sees us as sons and daughters, that he forgives us of our sins, that there's eternity, that there's hope, we can believe in that promises because of things he's already done. We use the Old Testament to build up. We use the Old Testament to build our faith and give us confidence in the things that God has said and God has done. Because this is true. If God were not completely faithful, if God were not completely truthworthy, a revelation from him would be a mockery. It would go against who he is. Number two, don't do it alone. If you dive into Old Testament prophecy, don't do it alone. There's... Um, Commentaries, great commentaries from Old Testament prophecy. Is, uh, uh, last name is Woods. He does several Old Testament prophecies. I prefer him. I, I read his book on Daniel. It's great. It's very structured as a textbook. But if you're interested, uh, I love uh, Google. You can go to Enduring God's Word. It's a great commentary website. Just type in literally, you know, Isaiah 4, chapter 4, commentary. And and enduring God's word, and, and those will pop up. Um, you can check out Fiendster Stewart, which we, we've been talking about too, to kind of dive in. So if you're going to do it, Old Testament prophecy, don't do it along. And the last thing is, don't be lazy. A lot of times we're reading the Bible through the year. Uh, you're kind of getting close to the Old Testament prophecy here in the next month or so, right? Um, don't be lazy. You have a smartphone. You can Google, you can look it up, you can ask questions. Write in your Bible if you have things, you have to figure out. And maybe it's this, maybe you won't read your whole section of Bible for that day. But maybe take half that section and go and research a little bit on the Old Testament. But don't be afraid of the Old Testament prophecy. It's a lot of fun. If you love the historical context like I do, it makes the Bible come alive. Because you can go look at maps, you can go look at pictures online and see where these things have taken place and where these people groups have existed and the people who they were. And it's just, it's phenomenal. So let me pray and I'll, I'll let you out. Uh, Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the chance just to come here and uh, just be reminded of your goodness and your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you for the, the prophets that you have, that you spoke through. We thank you for your word that we get to read and cherish. And so, Lord, uh, let us leave out of here feeling built up in your word and built up in your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Sorry for holding you over. Thanks for coming.